0: For most of the 20th century, fashion shows were basically an industry-based affair. There were relatively modest productions that showcased seasonal collections to retail buyers and the fashion media. It was essentially a trade show, an insurance convention, but with a runway and attractive models. But by the 1990s, fashion shows had become a spectacle. They'd evolved into extravagant, high-profile events fueled by publicists, paparazzi, and the public's insatiable fascination for the glamour and luxury that the shows had come to represent. Fashion as entertainment had grown into a mainstream cultural phenomenon. Enter VH1 Fashion Awards, MTV House of Style, and Derek Zoolander. Today's guest was front and center for this explosion of public interest in fashion and the birth of the supermodel as a cultural icon. The minimalist, fresh-faced look he created on Kate Moss for Calvin Klein helped to define an entire era. His work has appeared in virtually every major fashion magazine, and he's collaborated with Gucci, Louis Vuitton, Balenciaga, Helmut Lang, Marc Jacobs, and too many more to mention. So how does a soft-spoken former butcher from southwest England end up being one of the most influential and sought-after makeup artists of his generation? We'll find out as we sit down for a conversation with the man whose artistic vision has influenced runway shows, covers, and red carpets for nearly three decades. Today, painter, makeup artist, and social media gourmet, Mr. Dick Page. Dick Page, thanks for sitting down, man.
1: How are you doing these days? Um, about the same as everybody else, I expect, you know. (laughs) ultimate boredom and hysteria
0: yeah i'm always curious how how different people are adapting to not being as busy as they normally are um i mean how have you been doing like i guess my question is would you consider yourself are you a workaholic i mean you're you're an extremely sought after guy and you're usually very busy is that a product of just being really talented and and really sought after or do you prefer it that way
1: not a loaded question at all. Really tempted and really sought after. Uh, no, I'm. I'm. I think. I think of myself as fundamentally very lazy. I'm not driven at all. <laughs> I'm not at all a workaholic. I mean, I've been doing this since God was a boy. So I got that out of my system quite early on. Just following everything and doing everything. I've been, you know, I try, insofar as it's possible, to try and do new things and work with new people and you know keep yourself kind of engaged. But. Um, I'm actually all right, not doing very much. I find, you know, I think a long time ago, I had, I had a teacher who, and one of my English teachers said, you know, sitting down and reading a book is not not doing anything.
0: I think a lot of people that are on this this, this um, treadmill of never stopping and, and always being focused on work, I think sometimes, not always, but it's often a product of them not wanting to address something or not being content, you know, being alone or Having quiet moments, I think
1: that's a, I think that's a sign of maturity. Well, it's maturity and or the <laughs> the, the uh, attendant fact of actual age.
0: Were you always like that? I mean, is it something that's come with
1: age, or I don't know, because um, to begin with, when I first started doing this, I didn't know it was a job. When I first started doing makeup, I didn't really think of it as a job. I thought it looked something I could do that was fun, and then it turned out you get paid for it, which is you know, miraculous. And then. And I started to do well and lots of stuff was coming my way because it was new. I said yes to tons of stuff that came along and no to not that much. And then, of course, you don't click with everybody you meet and everyone you work with. So you do, you gradually grow a a little bit of distance and perspective on things to see what's what's worth pursuing in terms of are they going to throw money at you or are you going to have a good time? Are you going to make interesting work? So it, it finds its own level, but, you know, I started doing this in the mid, like 87, 86, 87. So it's been a long time and it's found it's rather uneven level right now, but it found it's level. Well,
0: it's cut to cut to maybe, you know, nine months to a year ago. Did you say no to a lot of stuff?
1: Um, It's been coming. Actually, I, I, interesting. I, I had a contract for, for 20 years with Shiseido, the Japanese company, and that took about ton of time like a huge chunk of time annually and then when that stopped in early 2017 I found myself saying yes to a lot more stuff because I had more I was just generally more available and it was just kind of interesting to say like well I've missed this I've missed this I've missed this so I started saying yes to a lot more things and trying stuff out but you know occasionally stuff will come in and after doing this for so long, you start. You get to, you know, you read the room. You know, something comes in, and you think, okay, so clearly, whoever they wanted in the first place got hit by a bus or is trapped under. You can a, you can sense if you're second or third priority. You know, you know if you're yeah if you're seconds, it's like you know they're they're trapped behind a bookcase somewhere. They couldn't get out, and they've asked you. And sometimes that's a benefit. That, that's that's a blessing. If someone somebody asks you for something that you might not otherwise have got because this person is like being held at the border or whatever's happened, or you just think. A certain job comes in for whatever magazine with a photographer and there are so many unknowns in the in the situation. And you think, are they asking me? Is there a valid reason they're asking me? Do they think I can bring anything to these pictures or is it a hired hand situation? Sometimes hired hand is fine because, you know, someone's going to, like I said, throw money at you, whatever. And sometimes you think, well, there's anybody could do this job. And there's probably plenty of people who could do this job better than I could. So, like, save everyone the grief.
0: In general, though, do you view those situations as as a blessing in disguise, as a, as a, as a golden opportunity that maybe you wouldn't have had? Or is there an element of ego that, that creeps in a little bit, just knowing, like, mm, you know, like, I wasn't I wasn't the first one. Do I really want to do this?
1: It's a bit of both. You know, sometimes, you know, sometimes it's, it's, it does turn out to be, I mean, I, I hate is a super overused word, opportunity. It's a bit like opportunity and exposure are the most overused words. It's like, you know, you could do it for the exposure. You know, well, I don't need to build my portfolio. I think <laughs> people have a reasonably good idea of what I do and don't do or can and can't do. And you can pretty much do anything. If you're doing this job, you should be able to turn your hand to most things short of advanced prosthetics or whatever. But um, sometimes you, if there's a last minute call for something, you meet someone you might not otherwise have met. Sometimes it's, it's as random as meeting the person who does the sets. Or it's a set builder or someone else who you wouldn't ever otherwise have come across. Or a friend of mine asked me to work with a musician who I wouldn't otherwise, otherwise have met, who's become a friend. And so I'm always happy about the serendipity, the idea of like little occasional accidents in the same way as you might meet someone on the bus or you might meet someone in a, in a, in a shop. To allow for that to happen in your work life is, a, is a very, it's is kind of amazing considering how most people's work lives consist of them seeing the same people all the time. So it seems churlish to not take advantage of the idea that you are going to meet new people all the time
0: so you know you mentioned you've been you've been in this game for quite some time and <laughs> and there's one phrase every time i type in oh dick, dick page into the internet there's one phrase kept popping up and it was the golden age of fashion and i'm curious what that means to you what what, what does that mean
1: i have no idea that doesn't mean anything Who's the <laughs> I mean, no golden age there is no golden age of fashion the only, I mean the, the, well this is a bit like the. there was a great piece in the New Yorker a while ago but and it was some sort of like little prestige piece and the joke of the golden age of anything is when you were young and you got in places for free and you didn't have to buy your own drugs so <laughs> it's like kind of it's like people who say oh my god i wish i'd been in new york in the 70s and you think well the people who came to new york in the 70s are probably saying i wish i'd been in new york in the 60s or the 50s for the jazz or people you know so you think if you if your mentality is that the party finished right before you got there <laughs> then you're kind of screwed anyway
0: so for some people the today's today's the golden age of fashion for yeah. for some generation
1: for some yeah someone right now is is finding this all incredibly exciting and new, and this collision and, and, you know, chaos and drama and unrest, are some of the things that that, as we know, fuel creativity. In the seventies, when England was going to hell in a handbasket with its recession and the gas, the power strikes and the gas crises, not dissimilar to what America was going through, you get it gave rise to to punk and to civil unrest that creates new music and creates new art and makes people do things on a dime. Um, And I'm very interested in that kind of idea. I'm a little bit too old to be storming the barricades, but I'm interested in what happens when people are disenfranchised to this degree. Like, are are we going to get a great wave of art from? I mean, it seems like,
0: correct me if you think this is wrong. Here's my impression. If you look at editorial fashion or fashion in general, mainstream fashion, it seemed like for a long, long time, it was really geared towards insiders to a degree. And, the kind of ladies who lunch crowd. I mean, people who could actually go to Bergdorf or wherever and actually buy the collections that they were looking at in these magazines. And then sometime in the, in the nineties it, it, it transformed into mm-hmm. this spectacle where mainstream culture was really interested in it. And, and, and it spoke to them and it was marketed towards them. And you have things like the VH one fashion awards. And I do remember um the, fashion cafe and Rockefeller center. I
1: mean, oh, so, I mean,
0: but so that, that's a great example. I mean, that place wasn't a hotbed of industry insiders networking. Like it was geared towards the same people who were standing across the street with signs at the today show, you know? So yeah. like, how did that happen? And, and, and why then like, what, what factors were at play?
1: Uh, well, it's a little bit like the, um, oh my God, house of style MTV. Remember that?
0: Yeah. I mean, all those things, all these factors kind of came together. I mean, you know, some probably drove culture a little bit more and some probably followed it. But nonetheless, there really was this kind of zeitgeist where fashion was like this cultural phenomenon that people mainstream culture was interested in. Like, I'm curious your opinion of why that happened then.
1: I think it's because someone with the smarts realized it could be it could be monetized as an entertainment versus just something that was leading you to, to shop. So that's a good, that's a good question. It's a good, interesting way to see how that kind of became, how fashion became a spectator sport. Because I remember a long time ago, people saying, how do you you know people asking, how do you get into fashion shows? And my sister's friends like, how do you go to see a fashion show? Do you get tickets? And I said, well, well, no, it's a, it's a job. It's a, this is just a bunch of people going to work to watch other people at work working because it's a job. So I hadn't thought about it as that kind of entertainment, but then you know, Douglas Keeve made the documentary Unzipped about um, Isaac Mizrahi, who was his then boyfriend. And then before that, there had been a little bit about Saint Laurent. There had been kind of documentaries, like kind of behind the scenes, insidery ideas of this. But uh, up until that point, I think you're right; it hadn't, it hadn't been, it hadn't become the uh, Disney World. It hadn't been Times Squared. It hadn't done that stuff. So I don't know. Well, I think I guess it was just it was probably a byproduct of MTV and music video and all that kind of stuff that these worlds sort of bled together because pop stars going out with basketball players models going out with the other basketball players or the football players, you know, those kind of the cross-pollination of those kind of ideas. And of course, there's a huge amount of snobbery involved. Like you said about the fashion cafe, like no one would be caught dead in the fashion cafe. Yeah. And remember um, the coffee shop on Union Square? Of course, yeah. Like when I first when I first came to New York in the in the late 80s and 90s, you know, people said like, you know, oh, coffee shop is a bit like South Beach in Miami. Like, you know, models would be sort of hanging out there with their portfolios. Said, but what is this? this? Is supposed to be like coffee shop discoveries. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think it ever worked like that. I mean, strange.
0: It's, it's strange and, and it also carries over. So, I mean, if you look at photographers from the nineties, mm-hmm. a very small list of bold face names that mainstream culture would recognize, yeah. um, you know, like people outside of the industry, outside of print media, you know, maybe Steven Mizell after the Madonna book, or maybe Annie Leibovitz, Avedon, but it's a very short mm-hmm. list, but on the other hand, you have, you know, at least at least five to ten models, supermodels, that everybody from teenagers to housewives, like they knew mm-hmm. their names, with Naomi Campbell and Christy Turlington, and Linda Evangelista, yeah. of course, Kate Moss. So, you know, yeah. you were there with her from the beginning. Like what what was that like being at the, the epicenter of this explosion of interest in, in models and and in, and fashion as a pop culture phenomenon? Like did you have did you have the context at the time to, to 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 realize what was happening and to appreciate it, or was it just kind of like the normal that you lived through?
1: It was a thing that was. I mean, I, we were very you were very aware when I first started working in you know in England, and I was trying to get my uh, my portfolio together. You were really aware of the ubiquity of those girls and Steven Mazel, who was this kind of basically Italian Vogue was his portfolio. That's how it worked. And you thought, well, does anyone in Italy really read Italian Vogue? It doesn't seem very Italian. Of course, it was an Italian and there were some Italian photographers in there and there were bits and pieces of stuff going on in different editors, but primarily it was it was Steve Maisel's portfolio along with a bit of Paolo Riversi and, you know, Santa Dorazio occasionally and Ellen von Anderleuth, whatever. But um, that was just the industry kind of consuming itself, like eating itself up and shitting itself out and just deciding that these were the appointed goddesses of the period and they were going to be those girls who were then on the Versace runway. The same, it's, it's all, of course, you, I'm sure you know, super incestuous, But the same people who were running Italian Vogue are also running all those designer accounts and are hand-in-glove and besties with the Versace's and whoever else is, you know, primarily in Italian fashion. So, coming from England, you're a bit like, oh my God, that these these models, these giantesses that are not real people. Apart from Naomi, we had a bit of inside scoop on Naomi because she's English. But that kind of it was an abstract reality, but I, th- I think the reason they became the household names was because people were a little bit bored of film stars, because film stars had stopped being glamorous. After, at a certain point, you didn't feel like film stars were glamorous. You knew too much about them. You knew that this one took out her own trash and this one wore sweatpants at the weekend. But models still had this kind of a certain amount of glamorizing distance. You didn't know everything about them.
0: And was that an element of, not only did you not know anything about them, but they, they morphed all the time, almost by definition, as there were these, on one hand, public public figures, but also, on another hand, like these blank slates that could be kind of moulded for all these incredibly creative people every time they got in front of the
1: lens? It was, you know, the commodities. They the were, the were objects, objectified, and commodities in the same way as everything else that comes along. They might as well have been bags or, or you know, might as well have been purses or shoes because of the way they were used and the way they were represented. So um, I don't know, the interesting thing is they didn't really change. Because of the joke about Linda Evangelista, people always say about, you know, oh, Linda the chameleon. Not really. You could tell it's Linda from space. She could be over here with this photographer, over here with this photographer. It's always Linda. It's always essentially Linda. It's a little bit like certain actors and actresses back in the day. You know, they were always, Jimmy Stewart was always himself. He was a bit more worried in this one. <laughs> he was a little bit tougher in this one. Yeah. He was always Jimmy Stewart. So that didn't really change. So um, maybe that's also a big part of the, the model fashion as entertainment, because who knows who's buying those clothes? People are buying the fragrance, they're buying the lipsticks, they're maybe buying the accessories. So that's model fashion as entertainment, that kind of world. And it and it's, is accessibility, because there's not that much investment in flipping through a fashion magazine versus going to the theatre or paying a lot of attention to a couple of hours in the, in the movie theatre. Maybe it's just you know short attention span theatre,
0: that's interesting though. Cause I, I mean, I want to get your take on this cause I, I almost thought of it as exactly the opposite. Cause you look at the explosion of interest in fashion in the nineties. I mean, you look at fashion, it's fashion photography. It's right there in the name and ultimately you're selling fashion, you're selling clothes, but the amount mm-hmm. of people that were interested in it versus the amount of people that actually had the resources to purchase those designer clothes. I mean, there was an element of, of aspirational culture involved in it, but for the most part, it was really just beautiful pictures, of really beautiful people. And it seemed almost like at some point the media had this epiphany that they're like, Oh, well, if it's really just about that, then why don't we use celebrities? Because in a sense, I feel like they're, they are, they're more accessible and they're more marketable because everybody can afford to go to a movie or everybody watches Mm -hmm. must see TV or whatever. And it seemed like almost overnight it ushered in this sea change of, of celebrities taking over magazine covers. Like how did that happen?
1: That was, again, that was, that was. how can you monetize something? I mean, so so the models had their, I guess they had they held sway up until the early 90s, late 80s and the 90s. And then obviously someone thought, well, look, Us Weekly is flying off the shelves and People Magazine and people do want to know about these, these people. So why don't we use them? And it didn't hurt that, of course, by definition, a lot of the people you want to, you know, you want to go to the movies to see that if you're dreaming about someone, if it's going to be, I guess, in the 70s, you're Lauren Hutton and you're, 80s, your Julia Robots, whoever else it is, it makes sense that you put those in a, those people in a magazine because I don't know. It's is that is that uh, I suppose nothing's changed
0: because you know it seems like the accessibility. I mean, the way I saw it, the inaccessibility is the ability to buy the clothes that the models are wearing, not just the magazine. Whereas mm-hmm. if you have a celebrity on a cover, like you can you can go see that movie, you can be much more of a part of that experience, you know, as opposed to just oh, that's a beautiful picture of
1: model. X, that's right. right now, so you think it was just the opposite? Well, no. I mean, I actually, think. Well, no. The the cognitive dissonance moment is that those two things still went hand in hand because the magazine pages. You know, you would do you would do your lead. The magazine would get a bit of change from the f- studio, whoever's film they're promoting. You had that lead story from the cover. Inside had a beauty beautiful picture of you know Patrick de Marchelier with Julie Roberts and Francois Nas and and whoever or you know Kevin O'Quinn whoever it was. And then you had a Chunk of the book was models and clothes, usual business as usual. So your model was kind of your lure that was like baiting the trap to get people in there, and then your, your performer rather your actor actress, and then you got business as usual inside. And I suppose that coincided with a little bit of the you know the the film stars were going to they're, they're going straight from their premiere into the fashion shows. So your front row, the front row was a really relatively recent invention. Front row was always editors. It was always editors, the primary ones, the important ones from the Vogue's and stuff. And then suddenly you had this one from the film and this one from so-and-so and and this film producer and this, you know, blah, 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 director, whatever.
0: It became a a publicity platform rather than an, an industry show.
1: Yeah. And it became a yeah a race to see who who got the most influential or important front row, and then of course this coincides with the backstage reporting and fashion show reporting. Because when I first started doing fashion shows, there wasn't really any such thing as a backstage. There were two or three photographers who came backstage, and they were just doing stuff that would then show up in the little thumbnails in the in the big big magazines. And then you know Linda Wells started a law magazine that gave beauty a kind of a, a big push, making real making people realize that that was as, as important as a clothes and. Again, accessibility—you can afford the lipstick that the model is wearing. You've got no prayer of affording the clothes, but you can probably buy that lipstick. Yeah. So all these things kind of like mash up together, and they um, it's of course pre pretty much pre-cell phone, pre-internet, but it was the beginning of all that—the beginning of too much information.
0: And while you were at the middle of this, while you were witnessing this this transformation, did you did you find it interesting? Did you find it? Silly? Did it make what you were doing seem more important? Like, what was your take on it?
1: No, it was aggravating. It's extremely aggravating to have people who don't do the same job as you or are and involved in any way come backstage and bother you. It's a real pain in the ass. I'm quite happy. I mean, more recently, over the last ten years, I used to do um, the Celine shows with Phoebe in Paris when Phoebe fellow was still designing Celine, and she didn't have any backstage. She didn't want any photographers or reporters on backstage. It was it was bliss. It was great. You had the girls who didn't have to talk to every reporter, didn't have to talk about why they loved the designer. They just sat there, they got their makeup and hair done, and they did the show. And that was what we were there. I keep saying, you know, we're here to do a job. Helmut Lang is a designer I worked with a long time, and Helmut used to call his shows a séance de travail, a work session. And that's part of the... Maybe part of one of the things I have a problem with is that people don't take the work aspect of things seriously enough. And it's very hard to get a sh- I mean, it's hard enough to get a show done anyway given the time constraints and whatever else has to happen. But if you've got the world and his wife backstage as well, making videos and reporting and talking to everybody, I just found it extremely aggravating.
0: And what about, not the attention while it's happening backstage, like I could see how that'd be incredibly frustrating, trying to get your work done, but the attention after the fact or just by the public as a whole, like having that much more attention and eyes on what you do and on the industry as a whole, what was your impression on that? Did you appreciate that or did you just find it silly and... You didn't quite understand it.
1: Never necessarily silly because obviously it's important to somebody in some, in some capacity. It's important either in terms of how people can help monetize the situation for the designer or you know, make sense of that or sell their magazines. But in terms of what I do, a bit of exposure is good, of course. And you want to, you know, it's nice to be interviewed, to, uh, to be asked your opinion on why you're doing this thing for this designer. There's a reason, there's a story why someone has decided the girl should look a certain way. So never silly, but not always uh useful or ultimately kind of engaging because it, it it fed into the disposability of things, the short attention span I've mentioned before, but also um a little bit like the whole uh pulling back the curtain in the Wizard of Oz, like revealing too much information, the behind the scenes thing. It's a bit you know, or seeing when they see the making of things of the superhero film on TV. I don't want to see this person with wires. I want to see, I want to see them flying. I want to believe the flying part. I don't, I don't need to see the the dirt. I don't see someone scrabbling around on the floor, like trying to make a shoe fit for that moment. (laughs) I want to believe that, you know, the thing they've come to sell me. When the girl steps out and everything's perfect.
0: Experience the final product as it was intended.
1: Yeah, exactly. So same as the theater, suspension of disbelief. The willing suspension of disbelief. You go to the theater, you know you're in a big dark room with hundreds and hundreds of other people waiting for this thing to happen. Someone's going to come out, pretend to be someone else, and you're going to fall for it because that's why you're there. That's sort of what I want from fashion, whether it's an ugly sweater and a pair of boots or it's some insane gown extravaganza. I want to be seduced or surprised or excited by what I see. I don't want to know that this person has a cold.
0: Was there a sense of, of, of camaraderie between you and the photographers and some of these girls that you you guys all came up together in this crazy rollercoaster of, you know, of success and exposure? I mean, did that really create this fraternity? Do you feel like you had uh, a class that you came up with? the people that are part of your class and you're like, oh yeah, that was our era. That's when we did this or that.
1: Yes, you kind of do, because you got thrown together. And then while people were having their moment, you know, you you banded off, you you were associated with certain people, you worked with certain photographers, sometimes that carried over to a designer or to, you know, with an editor or like the girls that you knew. Um, And again, when I started or when I first started doing a lot of fashion shows, early 90s, it was... There weren't that many people that I knew. I knew Kate because I knew Kate from London, and then I quickly met some other girls that I knew, and Emma Balfour is an Australian girl living in London at the time. So you got to know, meet these people. There were no cell phones. You saw them at work. You might arrange to meet them for a drink later on. You might. It was a, It was like a heightened version of of real life because it was in real life. I had at the time. That's all I knew. So you did have that kind of like. It was more like a traveling circus mentality, really, because you know, you might see these people and have a big scrum in one city and then you wouldn't see them for a few days and then suddenly you'd all pop up again in another city. Like on you tour. All, it's okay. almost like you all got shipped over there. Well, exactly, you're on tour and then you're like, boom, and you hit Paris and boom, you hit Milan, whatever. I mean, the shows used to be in a different order. You know, Paris used to be first. Helmet, Helmet changed that and, you know, made New York first. But uh, yeah, you're a little club and then people kind of came and went. For that period of the 90s, probably for me, 92 through... Ninety six, ninety seven was that kind of. Seems like a long time, doesn't it?
0: Who were some of the Who were some of the faces that were you would consider like you know in your class of that era? I mean, obviously Kate. Um, and who else did you do? You keep in touch with anybody?
1: You know, I don't really. I mean, you bump into people from time to time. I've seen Amber, Paletta a bit, and I um, you know, but I used to see you know it was it was Kate and Shalom and Amber, and there was a bunch of other girls who kind of came, and went, and Rosemary Ferguson, some of the English girls are like Emma, who I mentioned before. And then Guido, I was working with for hair, and I started working with Orlando Peter around the same time. And so there was, and then this manicurist or this photographer or that. So, so some people you, you were tight with and close close to and saw all the same time, but the same t- uh, all the time. But at the same time, my social circle wasn't really wasn't really that. I didn't get I didn't go to all the parties, the fancy parties. I went to I got, you know got to go to a certain number of things, but it wasn't. It wasn't what the life was like.
0: Um, By by design, my personality, or it just wasn't really part of the job at that point?
1: It was part of the job, but it was more part of the job. Like, people didn't really give a shit if they saw me at a party, but they really, really wanted to see that girl.
0: But did you give a
1: shit about being there? I mean,
0: did you want to be there, or is that not something you're interested in?
1: I I kind of did, because, you know, if you're you're young-ish and excitable, it's nice to have free things. It's nice to have a free drink and a night out. Yeah, of course. But, you know, I also having come to new york you know i would i had an amazing time in london and the clubs and the parties and the stuff and then my from my hometown in bristol in the west of england that was probably the main part of my clubbing and going to see bands and that kind of stuff so i wasn't as interested in the nightlife when i got to new york also i found it kind of weirdly segregated and kind of strange after coming from you know basically england this little rock things were kind of piled in together and everyone was at the same places and i came to new york A couple of places I used to like to go to, I was sort of surprised to find that this place was really, really all white, or this place was primarily black, and there's a couple of white people in there and stuff. It it seemed strange to me that things were so separate. The crowds were very different. You know, maybe some of the gay clubs are a bit more mixed, but, you know.
0: Yeah, I would have thought that it would have been much more segregated by... being beautiful or in the mix or not as opposed to skin color, you know,
1: you don't want to go to that party. No, I think yeah. that's, <laughs> like. I mean, that's, a, that's, that would be hard to sustain. It'd be hard to sustain a party that was just about the fashion people. Cause no one, you know, no one can really keep their shit together for that long.
0: Yeah. Um, so I was a photo assistant for, you know, five plus years. <laughs> Poor and thing. I got to work with some really, really interesting people. <laughs> um, I never got to work with Kate Moss. Okay. Um, however, I have one great Kate Moss story. And um, if I go first, will you match it? I'm sure you must have loads of good ones.
1: <laughs> That's <was> sued. <absurd.
0: laughs> doesn't have to be salacious. I think this is, this is so fun. So um, for a number of years, I was personal photographer to Sean Combs, P. Diddy. Oh, daddy. Okay. Um, so, so I traveled with him extensively, a lot of times overseas, just kind of documenting the circus that is his life. And we were in London and it was a title fight. For Prince Nassim and so Puff introduced the fight. Prince Nassim won the fight. We're backstage in his dressing room and not only is he a professional athlete but he's Muslim and so Kate Moss comes walking in and she's smoking a cigarette and so somebody from his camp walks over and you know politely asks her to put her cigarette out and she pauses and says why is someone trying to breathe in here and then (laughs) flicks the cigarette on the carpet and stomps it out with her stiletto heel. (laughs) It was just So fucking on brand. And just so I just was like, it just made me smile. Even at the time, I was like, I'm so grateful to have gotten to experience that whole encounter. Um, Do you do you have any do you have any standout moments from Kate?
1: They well see, mine don't really count because I met Kate when she was fifteen, you know, and so she, the fully formed like the brattishness of Kate was it was already in place, and she was you know she was a kind of a, a very smart, bright little punk. Um, no, all my Kate stuff is is I mean, apart from the things that I said that like I might get sued for, there's not that many of those either. Um, they're just like really quite naff things like just doing these random little like weirdnesses. I think it's more interesting to think of the weirdnesses, like just Kate still lived in Croydon and was spending her weekends in London with friends whatever. And I, I lived in Brixton, Southwest London. So we, we take the same bus home together. So the random weirdness of that, like, if I think, when did Kate last take a bus? She hasn't taken a bus in donkey's year. I can't remember. Or we were doing a job with Corin Day. It was Melanie Ward, Corin Day, who was one of the very early photographers of Kate. And, um, And me, and we were doing something for Levi's that I think Simon Foxton coordinated, a stylist in London. And we were near, I think it was maybe one of the Levi's things, or might be something for the face. And we were near Marble Arch and there's a McDonald's at the corner. And they had a promotion where you get like a little voucher, like all like a scratch off thing and you could win something. So we were all taking turns to go in and just buy fries and get a little scratch off thing, and a little scratch off thing and you get some free something else. And so it was like a little rotation of who was going to the McDonald's because there was no budget. There was no lunch. And so that's, that's my glamorous Kate Moss story, scratch off cards to get free free chips in McDonald's. As out for a match it's not not quite the same personality that's, Yeah, that's been. so
0: interesting because it's so antithetical to what you think of her and i meant that story that i told i meant that in a very endearing way i mean she's i just have always adored her i mean do you have an emblematic story that just kind of speaks to the, the 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 glamour and snark that people assume that, that kate moss embodies
1: um probably not i mean She's, I mean, but my favourite is she's very... She's sharp and very funny and a bit evil sometimes when she wants to be. And I remember Guido teasing her about something in New York for some time. And because, you know, we, of course, we've known each other since whenever. And he, back and forth and back and forth. And she finally shut him up and she said, Oh, shut up, Guido. I knew you and you were fat and straight. Which <laughs> <laughs> is <It was> like... <laughs> i was like the end (laughs) just shut him right down that's funny but mostly it's just like it's just the just the mouth that you associate with a certain kind of english girl yeah just just snappy mouthy scrappy little cape same my little evil sister
0: so you know we talked a little bit about you know the transition of how the influx of celebrities took over a lot of the magazine covers and that was kind of the first wave and then there's almost seems like there's this this second transformation in the industry in the last couple of years were, you know, with the decline of of print media and the rise of, of social media and social media influencers. Mm -hmm. I'm curious how that's affected you or affected the industry. Because I mean, if you look at your Instagram, there's a lot of beautiful pictures on there, but there's also a lot of of personal pictures and a lot of food pictures, which I think Mm -hmm. are great. I think that's really what social media was originally intended to be. And then it became this kind of personal branding channel for everybody. Mm -hmm. But I'm wondering, do you feel like you have the luxury of operating like that? Cause you were kind of grandfathered in as this extremely successful makeup artist. I mean, would you be operating differently or be forced to operate differently if you were just starting out now?
1: Probably so. I mean, it's social media. I mean, my husband James nagged me to get on, get onto Instagram whenever it happened. Of course, you know, he created a monster, but um, I, I thought it was, it was, mostly useful because rather than trying to say to someone like a friend or family member, I'll send you a picture. You can put the picture up on the thing. You know, you put the picture up on the thing. Also, oh, this is interesting. I like this. The wife th- I thought it was interesting when I started looking at Instagram myself personally, entirely outside of the work was I've just seen something of a book or a film or a place in the world or something about food or restaurant or recipe re- recommendation, the idea of like finding little bits and pieces out about something like this textile designer or this writer, this book binder find that kind of, that was sort of amazing to me. A bit like Google without the sweat and things being kind of handed to you, which I thought was sort of interesting. You'd find follow a certain person who would lead you to this person, who'd lead you to this person. I've met people who I probably never otherwise would have stumbled across because of Instagram. And I never felt really like I needed to sell myself because I'm doing what I'm doing anyway. I think it's nice to share pictures of work, of things that I hadn't otherwise seen or people might not otherwise see. I mean, you know, the magazine fanatics, the people who've kept every copy of ID since, you know, 1989 or whatever, or The Face, or the people who who live in, you know, Half a studio apartment, and the half it's taken. you know, more than half it's taken up the magazines. Most people don't have the archive. I don't have an archive. I don't keep magazines. Who gives a shit? So it's nice to see something like someone will say, Oh, did you, you do this? So you see the work. Whereas people come up now, whether they are actively working as makeup artists or they're people who are creating themselves to sell, um, I find that focus very narrow and deeply, deeply boring.
0: Yeah. I mean, the point I'm getting at is if you, if you look at your Instagram, I really, I feel like it gives a good insight into who you actually are and what your interests are and what you're inspired by, but it's not just a commercial for recent work that you've done. And I think in a lot of cases, not only is that what most people put up or a lot of people, but it's almost what you have to put up if you want to kind of cut through the white noise and try and make a name for yourself as a new makeup artist or as a new photographer. I mean, do you think that you would operate very different if you were just coming up now?
1: I don't know if I could. I mean, I don't know how I can't, I don't have that good of an imagination because I can't really imagine starting now. I don't know. I don't know, obviously um, if the stars would have lined up in the same way, if I was starting now, because I don't have a very pushy personality. I fell in with a group of people who are interested in working and making pictures. Some of those stories and things we started doing, obviously we did did them on no budget. So something that was in the face with Kate and Corin and Melanie or something with David and, and Emma, whatever, we would do that over a period of three or four weeks. It wasn't like you booked a, a job. It was like, someone's free here, so we can borrow so-and-so's car. We can do this. So-and-so will let us use the studio at the end of the day. It was all kind of pieced and cobbled together. It was like, you know you did, you made do with what you could. It wasn't, it wasn't an instant thing to to book a studio and get a a job and get it in the magazine. Some of these things we did on spec, they were just tests. Whereas nowadays you have to have, I think you have to have, you have to capitalize on the idea of super visibility and the instantaneous appeal of seeing something online. So you do something flashy, you do something that works in a five second, 10 second, 15 second burst you're selling yourself. And that's what I, and I don't know that I would ever actually be able to compete in that way. So if I was starting now, I might be royally fucked. I might not ever have a job. Yeah.
0: I mean, also, you know, those, those editorial projects that, that you just talked about, they also existed in the context of an extremely powerful print media an extreme interest in fashion. And so you may not have made a bunch of money up front or had a huge budget for those projects, but once they were completed and printed and on the stands, like they lived for 30 days and people saw that
1: there was a lot of reach you know and that. but they they didn't really because there was there was no they didn't have a global reach at the time you had they, you met a couple of fashion fanatics when I first came to New York to do shows I got I did the Calvin Klein show that was my first fashion proper fashion proper fashion shows in New York and someone had to find some assistance for me I'd never worked as an assistant I'd never had any assistants. they didn't know me from a hole in the wall of the team there was one person who'd seen stuff I'd done in the face and ID Those magazines didn't have circulation. You met people like Jimmy Paul, who's a hairdresser, who has an encyclopedic knowledge and understanding and appreciation of fashion, who has seen those things. But for the most part, people were living for American Vogue and for Bazaar and Italian Vogue and the high glamour, that kind of stuff. I could have been anybody. For the most part, I was coming in there quite raw, unknown. So those magazines acquired a kind of an importance later on. When someone said, oh my God, that was Kate when she was 15 or 16. That was early Corinne Day. That was very early Jürgen Teller. But at the time, they did not have any reach because you had to go to the shop and buy the magazine. And if it wasn't available, you didn't get it. So you didn't see it. At
0: what point did, did that class like take over the throne? Or when were they invited or adopted in by the you know, American Vogue's and the Allures and like the mainstream big publications?
1: It was around, it was pretty much... Uh, Fabian Barron at Calvin Klein, Polly Hamilton was working as a stylist at the time, and Carolyn Bassett, who was working with Calvin. Those people who said, this is the way, this is where things are going, they were the people who got Kate in. I think Patrick maybe introduced Fabian, and, or Pat, maybe Patrick and Fabian introduced Calvin to Kate, got that thing going. And then we, because me and David and Melanie and had, and Corin had done a lot of work with Kate for those magazines in England at the time, we were invited to come in and do stuff. They brought us in to do some of the advertising. So David Sims got quite early Calvin Klein advertising with Kate, maybe two seasons after she'd first started working. But then, of course, there was the whole the grunge and the heroin chic and that scandal of that and who is this anorectic child and blah, 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 and all the other projections yeah. going on. So that sort of opened the door because it was counter to everything that came up. Like We talked before about the, the, the big glamour models.
0: Anti-beauty.
1: Kate mm-hmm. was invited. Yeah. So Kate was invited to that party a little bit later. But as it turned out, I came, I came in and I went to do the test, the makeup and hair test for Calvin with Kate, put a little bit of lipstick on her nose and her cheeks, put some Vaseline on her eyes. And that was it. That was the look. And Calvin said, oh, that's not much. I said, well, that's, you know, that's, that's, what you know, that's why we're here. That's why we came to New York. So we did it. And that, again, fashion you know, thrives on change. And so that seemed to flip things on its head for a while. So that
0: ushered in a new era indirectly. Yeah, pretty much. a new way So
1: I want to ask if if that's the
0: case. I want to I want to get your opinion. So in the context of of today, where you have so many YouTube makeup artists, and some of them are I'm sure very talented, but there's also mm-hmm. a lot of heavy handed amateurs who are really good at marketing, and you see mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of beige and a lot of contouring and a lot of heavy eyebrows. Like, have yeah. they have they actually changed the perception of what makeup is supposed to look like for for mainstream culture?
1: Yeah, they've made it like you know. If you can paint a house, you can paint your face. It's like,
0: <laughs> it's I mean, Kim, not, Kim Kardashian's not exactly known for a light touch on her look. No. You know, I mean, that's not...
1: I mean, you know, she, Kim Kardashian works with very good people and she has people who do know what they're doing. And they're, I mean, it's interesting to me because that's sort of a reflection of the very old school I kind of inherited. I came into that world of, of people like Kevin O'Kwan who had that kind of contour glamour thing down. And that has, of course, returned. We can blame drag queens for the most of it. Um, and there's, you know, there's a lot of people who technically seem very proficient, but the, the thing I find very weird, supposedly now this democratization and inclusivity of beauty is, it's a bit like there's, um, I, I quote, I, I cite this writer a lot, is Lucy Greeley, who wrote a book called Autobiography of a Face. And in it, she has this great line about realizing that in, in high school, the girls who are considered beautiful were the ones who are the best at looking like everyone else. So what's happening now, to my mind... I mean, you see a few people who seem who are talented and abstract or working on their own arena, but you see a lot of people who are just the best at looking like everyone else. So the same style of eyebrow, that donkey eyelash goes on, the cut crease painted thing and the stuff, and then this happens, and then God help us, you know, years of highlighter, save us from the <laughs> highlighter. All that stuff. And, sadly, it's all happening in a little box. It's all happening in a little box on your hand, or the computer but it's on your phone, whatever. And it's just this world of people's heads, these disembodied, I, this disembodied idea of beauty that has no context and weirdly prescient of the whole kind of COVID thing, isolation, people having to be, you know, alone or separated from everyone else. I don't think that beauty is that interesting in a box. I'm not really interested in, in the close-up. During the
0: lockdown, there was this time where no one really had access to, to glam teams. And you had on-air talent literally doing their own hair and makeup and it seemed Mm -hmm. really strange at first but everybody was kind of in the same boat and then it just became the new normal like do you think that had any effect on on beauty ideals or does is the pendulum always swing back
1: that's No, that's a blip. That's like a little blip on the radar. That doesn't really yeah. affect anything, I don't think. Um, th- of course, the the nature of fashion is that it's going to change. It's going to keep changing. It's going to absorb itself. It's going to do a lot of, you know, I hate the expression, but a virtual signaling right now that's going on of everyone saying, quick, young, new black photographer, preferably trans. Let's get, you know, let's, let's look like we care. Let's Let's start acting like we give a shit. You really don't. But, you know, there's a lot of that going on right now. And I'm sure there's a lot of talented people who are who are getting, a you know, a, a swipe. But there's a good piece in the New York Times about this, talking about how, you know, Vogue, for example, saying, like, getting these these younger, new talent in, still sort of appointing itself as kingmaker, as if the recognition of, of Vogue or the endorsement of Vogue is, is still as important as it used to be, which I don't think it really is. He said, having just come off a five-day Vogue job. It doesn't
0: move the needle like it used to, yeah.
1: No, but... There's an awareness of it, and the ubiquity of Vogue, and the historical sway it's held over fashion and beauty media. What's that
0: been replaced with? The YouTube blogger is that the influencer culture? I mean, who? What's taken that throne instead? Or is it just fractured?
1: It's fractured. I think what's happening right now is the equivalent of space junk colliding. We have space junk. We have this, um, the established print media, which is dissolving because who's buying magazines? And we have, you know, the YouTube. We have the Instagram, the Twitter, the the God helps, the TikTok or whatever else is going on, the instant gratification of small visuals that people just absorb and spit out because they don't really have any lasting importance. It's lovely to have a book. It's lovely to see something beautifully printed. There's less and less of it. But um, I think what's interesting is that there is no, people aren't going to authorities or experts so much anymore, because why should they? If the expert is the person who's going to tell you you're doing this wrong, this is how you should or this is how you shouldn't, the do's and don'ts. I've always, as long, I'm not just blow my own on it, as long as I've been doing makeup, I've hated this idea of the do's and the don'ts of beauty, the ins and the outs. And now it's this and no, not that. And now it's this and not that. Who fucking cares? You can wash your face. It's coming off. It's not a pair of shoes. It's not a purse. It's, you know, There there is no... I mean, until you start, like, cutting your face or injecting shit, there's no great... Permanent investment in the idea of beauty. It is a face that is washable, so you can do it all again. And you can do it all again exactly the same, or you can do it all again very, very differently. So you're not going to some iconic figure who's saying, you're handing down the 10 commandments of beauty that you will look this way. It's happened. Because enough of the YouTubers and the vloggers and the influencers have decided that this is still a thing—this contour, the brow, the lash, the gloss, the lip, the highlight—is the thing. Enough. There's enough consensus that that seems to be the way beauty works right now. But on one hand, it's good that it's not this kind of fixed idea of season seasonal change and makeup being dictated by the magazines. On the other hand what is what's replacing it isn't that interesting
0: i mean you're talking about being fractured instead of there being you know the 10 commandments of beauty there's the ten thousand commandments of beauty depending on yes who you pay attention to and then coupled with the fact that you don't need authorities to tell you how to do anything anymore because you have youtube you could do open heart surgery on youtube yes i'm gonna put a new roof on my house (laughs) like design a centrifuge (laughs) yeah you know (laughs) so like everyone's an authority now
1: yeah, exactly. So I mean, in, in a sense, that's very freeing, because why not? Why the hell not just go and do that thing? But on the other hand, it's it sort of harks back to what I talked about a little while ago, the idea of there being no mystery or no, um, we have no patience for the idea of things anymore, because there is no mystery. There's nothing behind it. It's entirely instant product. It's just not that interesting. Um, well,
0: let me let me switch gears for a second. I'm curious your difference in approach working with a model versus a a really famous actress or celebrity on one hand, mm-hmm. in terms of the makeup itself, like it would seem that the model would be a little bit more of a blank canvas as opposed to a very famous actress who's probably going to come to the table with a little bit more of a, an established look or identity, mm-hmm. but, but also just physically dealing with them. I mean, I'm mean, taking pictures is a pretty intimate endeavor, but I mean, doing makeup, you're literally touching someone's face for hours at a time. It's extremely intimate. Like how do you, mm-hmm. how do you navigate the personalities and the egos of dealing with an actress as opposed to a model?
1: Uh, Well, obviously I've worked with a lot of actors and actresses and it's not, it's not my preferred job. It's not my favorite thing. I've not, I've never been associated with a certain actor or actress for for a period of time, but I, you know, I've worked with a few people a few times repeatedly with different photographers or whatever. Um, Depending, it's so dependent on the photographer and the context, depending on who you're working with. If you're working with, say Inez and Venoud for V Magazine or so and so for or Jürgen Teller for W or whoever it is, they just by the fact of agreeing to work in that context, those people are meeting you. So they've
0: opted in for a certain degree of of, of creativity.
1: Yeah. They know what they're in for. They know what they're in for because they know they're not going they're not it's not the same attitude as they would have going in for a Patrick de Marchelie shoot or something, for example, from back in the day, for whatever or even an Annie Leibovitz shoot. It's not quite the same as that, or a Mara Testino, because what happened further to what you were saying earlier on is that a lot of the actors and actresses want to be more in the fashion arena of things. So they're no, they're no longer just glorified portrait sessions, which is what they always used to be. So even though that's not my stock in trade and it's not the main thing I like to do, I've done it, and I've worked with some people and done some great pictures. I've done some things I've I've been thrilled with, but that's not where I'd rather be in the first place. But that said, um, even the model is never really a blank canvas because there's always, of course, uh, sort of the same as with the, a celebrity actor or actress. There's an editor who has a voice. There's maybe an art director, someone from the magazine publication has a voice. The photographer has a way of looking and seeing things. So it's always going to be, you know, I never. I would never, of course, just show up and say this person is going to look like this. Yeah. Today I present, you know, I present Kate Moss as Julie Andrews or Scarlett Johansson in the role she was born to play, and we've turned her into so and so for the whatever magazine. So, um, the physical fact of it for me, as a naturally shy person, is to get over that a little bit and deal with people. And it does a bit harder with a, an actor or actress because you know, of course, they they have a different kind of importance in the world and the reason for you being there. Is largely them, so you know you temper yourself a little bit with how you, how you But Has it. that
0: changed in your career as your stature is is grown as as a makeup artist and your place in the industry has grown?
1: Um, it's well, it's changed. Probably, is I'm doing less and less of that. I'm not as engaged, and it's not the kind of the work I want to do. But um, uh, I don't know how it's changed. I mean, it's it's a kind of weird now that we've had this kind of like deadline. This flatlined year It's sort of almost like i feel like it's kind of a a ishiguro novel like can't quite remember our old lives like who we're becoming and where we've been because those things seem so much like ancient history um uh i
0: don't don't really know that's okay well we'll switch gears there's something i hope you'll find inspiring um i know you're really into food i've looked at your instagram and um you look like an amazing cook um what do you what have you been into lately what do you like cooking
1: uh it's well one thing of this this year the way th- the year has gone i'm not traveling i haven't been i haven't got been anywhere since the end of february so i have been very very close to the idea of what's actually seasonal where we are there's a farm up the road from it. I'm, we're on long island right now in the house we're having in long island, like the middle of long island there's an organic farm up the road and to really be aware on a weekly basis, week by week basis, what's changing in terms of the crop coming in this and that and the other. So I've been responding. What's
0: actually in season.
1: Yeah. Well, actually truly in season because I've never been, I'm not that big on the import of, of various of whatever stuff, but, uh, Obviously, if I'm cooking a certain specific cuisine that wants a kind of ingredient, I'll, I'll hunt it down. I get a lot of herbs and spices and stuff from Colustians on Lexington Avenue. And as I haven't been shopping there, I've been getting stuff in mail order. But um, I go for what's happening seasonally. Maybe I read something by someone. There's a few different cooks and people who, again, Instagram, I follow people. I've might you know, not, not otherwise have known about and it kind of comes in waves i do get a bit of a bee in my bonnet about something if i get an idea of a certain kind of food which used to come from directly from traveling i would come back say from morocco for example and then i would just like blitz out and lose my all mind my tangines yeah get all about the tagine and moroccan food for one until james finally says okay enough that's good we're good for that for a minute you know we can leave that what about,
0: have you ever uh, have you ever used the instapot what are your thoughts on that
1: I love the Instant Pot. Yeah, I use it like it's crazy. I've got one to, to see. Yeah,
0: it's incredible. I got one as a gift and I, I love it. It's like a slow cooker without the slow. Like It's it's like seven minute abs and then they made six minute abs. It's great. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, because it, it behaves more like, I mean, I remember growing up with a pressure cooker and this is us in the kitchen, like freaking out, like we're going to walk through the kitchen, mum's got the pressure cooker on, it's making those ominous rattling sounds yeah. and it's kind of like heaving and shaking. So it's like that. So it's like... No, no fear. The no fear pressure cook. It's brilliant. I love it. I love it. Particularly, we just said about Moroccan food, but like some of the like the pulses and the stuff. Um, Bessara is a Moroccan dish that you can use that have as a dip or a soup, and that's made with a dried split fava bean, which takes forever, or takes no time in the instant pot. So things like that are brilliant. So.
0: Well, cool. We always like to. I like to end this podcast with asking people to. I mean, we talked about we talked about some of the things you're into, and we talked about the history of fashion and and your your career. I love to give people an opportunity to, to put some attention on, on something that's been inspiring them lately, whether it's a book or a movie or an artist, something that really hasn't been getting the attention or shine that maybe it should have. Do you, um, you have anything you want to shout out that has really been inspiring you lately?
1: Uh, I've been, it might be a musical thing. I've been working on a big painting series. I've been painting pretty solidly these paint panels and stuff. Working, I'm doing a collaboration with a friend, an artist friend of mine for a top secret project which is supposed to happen on a surface around this time next year. So I've been doing a little bit of soul painting. So when I'm painting, I get like sort of like the hypnotic music rhythm thing. And my friend Joan turned me on to an artist called Cass McCombs. I don't know if you know him. Yeah. And I've yeah. been listening to Cass McCombs a lot, like re- repeat, really, really repeating. And he did a couple of songs on an album with the late actress Karen Black, which are just like mind blowing. And so that's kind of a mood, like a sort of, I wouldn't say it's a stabilizer, sort of enhancer, stabilizer, but there's something, there's something hypnotic and rhythmic about painting to music and working in a certain way. So that Cass McCombs album, I've just worn out. I don't have my record player right now, but if I did, I'd be have the, I'd have the vinyl on because I bought the, the vinyl record. I have the cover downstairs. Amazing. So Cass McCombs, who is brand new to me as of a few months ago. We definitely set a mood, that, that, that music. Yeah, well, you know, of course, that's a, It's like that's pretty fundamental, the music thing. And the other thing that's been going on, because we're living in this horrible period right now, a while ago, um, I picked up also from, uh, I guess it was Margarita Missoni from the Missoni family in Italy. She posted something on her Instagram about um, an offshoot of the World Food Programme. The, the World Food Programme just won part of the Nobel Peace Prize. And they have a thing called Share the Meal. And that's like my little... A little charity thing that I'm not embarrassed to talk about because the charity thing, I think for the most part, don't don't go waving a flag about it if you're money here or there or the other, but a little bit of money. The, world food, um, the share the meal is a brilliant thing where it costs like fifty cents a day or something, and you know you do a little a monthly donation, and they'll keep you updated on which part of the world it's like famine relief and disaster relief and stuff. So in Haiti or in Sudan, Afghanistan, all these things, you know. So this family, you didn't do very much. You're not having Starbucks four times a week. You can put a bit in the pot and someone gets a bag of rice and some lentils. Yeah. feel like you're doing some good because you're stuck indoors. You can help out a little bit and it's easily Instagrammable. Share the meal. You can find it on Instagram, you know, and you give a couple bucks a week and that's, your, you know, you sleep better. All right.
0: Well, check that out. So it's share the meal on Instagram,
1: share the meal on Instagram
0: and Dick Pageface
1: on Instagram. Is that correct? Dick page face on Instagram. Yeah. What's <laughs> left of me. And it's mostly paint right now. Right now it's mostly painting and dogs with the occasional meal.
0: You know, that gives great insight into who you are. And, you know, thanks for taking the time to sit down. This is super interesting getting to get inside your head for a minute. And um, I wish you all the best, man. Hopefully we'll, our paths can cross soon in person when things get a little bit more normal. <laughs> Thank you. But, uh, Thank you very much. Thanks for sitting down, man. Talk to you soon. All
1: right, Justin. I'll see you. Cheers.
0: This episode of The Plug was produced by Bucci with audio engineering and original music by Peter Buckingham. Thanks for listening. And a huge thanks to today's guests for dropping in. If you like this episode, hit subscribe and be sure to tune in for future conversations.